This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. This week's guest is John Weber, President of the National Pork Producers Council. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by CHS Inc. CHS Inc. is a leading global agribusiness owned by farmers, ranchers, and cooperatives across the United States. Learn more at chsinc.com. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Iowa farmer John Weber next. In rural America, there are three things that never change. The land, the determination of the families that farm it, and the loyalty of their co-ops, which provide the markets, inputs, and agronomic expertise farmers and ranchers need to stay profitable. CHS, the nation's leading cooperative, is proud to connect member cooperatives and producers to the value of an energy, grains, and food company they own. To learn more, visit chsinc.com. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. No one knows better the cyclical nature of the agriculture industry than the nation's swine farmers. With his wife and son, Iowa's John Weber operates a crop and livestock farm in northeast Iowa. With both challenges and opportunities on the horizon, NPPC President John Weber is cautiously optimistic about the future of the hog industry in the U.S. I think there is an inherent will to grow the industry. I think we have to be very cautious in how we do that. There's some optimism out there with some of the free trade agreements, past free trade agreements that are performing very well, as well as a lot of excitement around TPP, which could be the next generation of free trade agreements for pork producers. I think there's a lot of cautious optimism built around that. I use the word cautious because there are also a lot of issues that are impacting the industry that um, are sometimes very difficult to overcome. And for example, just in the last 60 days, the run-up in feed grain prices um, has really kind of dipped into producers' margins. Um, It makes you think twice about growth and expansion. Um, So those are the kind of things that occur. It kind of goes up and down. But long-term, I would say this industry is setting very well uh, and would like to see growth and, you know, provide protein to a, you know, and into a global marketplace. What have you noted about the U.S. consumer and their acceptance of pork? Well, domestic demand has been amazingly strong, doing very well, and we've seen significant growth in export markets. Yes, we have some problems with certain countries, but we just feel the potential for growth is, is, you know, it's not so much domestically. I think we kind of have a mature market here in our country, but still very widely accepted and continue to work on developing new markets for pork products. But our growth will really come in overseas, in the export markets, and bringing countries up to uh, where they need to be and uh, their appreciation of some of the Western-style cooking. And uh, we think there's a lot of potential for pork products uh, globally. When I look at protein demand, and especially pork demand inside China, and countries like Vietnam, tremendous growth, and pork is their meat of choice. Does that give you an opportunity in those markets? Absolutely does, and and I think we you know we need to continue to be a competitive player there. That would be one of the benefits of TPP. Um, obviously, China is not in TPP, but Vietnam is, and so gaining market access in those countries uh, that consume a lot of pork and have very high populations 
is a great market opportunity for pork producers. What work have you done as you're reaching out to consumers to talk about the health benefits of pork? I mean, I think the the pork, the other white meat, and some of your other marketing through checkoff dollars, you've helped to tell your story very well. Is it catching on? And we need to continue to do that. Um, yes, it absolutely is. And most recently, um, you know, the change in attitude toward fat consumption, that it may not be all bad or the a cause of all health problems, has helped the pork industry significantly. Pork continues to remain a very nutrient-dense protein product for the consumer. Um, actually is a benefit to those trying to diet, uh, giving them some satiety and satisfaction while they're dieting. So pork has got a, definitely got a place uh, and you know, a lot of new products, a lot of new cooking methods. Uh, we continue. I know National Pork Board works very hard at presenting ways to enjoy pork. Let's talk about challenges in the industry. Outside of the weather and the price of feed grains, what are some of the issues that you're facing as an industry that threaten your future? Yeah, I think there's you know kind of a long laundry list of, of challenges that we're always focused on and, and concerned about. I think probably right at the top of our list today would be on the antibiotic issue, the preservation and dependence on antibiotics in livestock production. Uh, the changes that we're about to make, and how those changes will benefit this whole complex problem of antibiotic resistance. During this coming year, we need to implement Guidance 209 and 213 at the farm level. That will be a significant change for a lot of producers on how they use and handle antibiotics. And I think it's a step in the right direction. We've been very supportive of this, reducing the need or the use of medically important, those antibiotics used in human medicine, reducing that use in livestock production. Um, that's one of the biggest challenges we face. Obviously, we talked about growth in the industry. We're, we're somewhat concerned that there may be more growth happening than what we USDA um, currently anticipates. And we know for a fact that we're going to run very close to packer capacity during, during this coming fall. And uh, that, that is a concern that we uh, may exceed packer capacity for a short period of time. Uh, certainly with some of the new announcements that have occurred, we hope that longer term that problem will uh, be solved and allow for growth. And then obviously there, there's a host of other regulatory issues, waters of the United States. We've just learned recently that USDA is going to issue a new GYPSA rule. Uh, we're monitoring that very closely. Those are some of the challenges that I would list uh, as impacting the industry here in the next 6 to 12 months. As you implement these changes with regard of antibiotics and the production of swine, do you feel that we're taking steps that would threaten the health of the herd and the product that you offer? I would say at this point in time, the answer is no. We were heavily involved in Guidance 209 and 213. We knew we needed to do something. We felt the industry could live with these new guidance rules. However, I think it's going to be very important that we continue to work with producers and to learn how to get by with less antibiotic use. And I know a lot of producers are taking steps on their own, whether that's, you know, just improving herd health by a strong vaccinating program, updating equipment, those kinds of things that will help keep a pig healthy through its lifetime are very important as we move away from more antibiotic use. Um, I think developing this relationship with your veterinarian is going to be very important.
and he too may have ideas for producers on how they can make different changes in how they raise pigs that will produce a healthier pig. It, it's amazing some of the techniques we've heard and have learned about. Even at day one of birth of a baby pig, the care that it gets, the cleanliness that it has, and the health that it has, has a big impact on how that pig performs the rest of its lifetime. And if you have a healthy pig, you can get by with a lot less antibiotic use. Let's shift to the Department of Agriculture. Okay. Talk about this gypsum rule and and what it means. It would be easy to see this from one side or the other. What's the position of the National Pork Producers Council on the USDA's proposal with gypsum? Well, the new rule that's going to be presented, we don't know exactly at this point in time how it's going to impact pork producers. We know that it could impact other protein producers probably more significantly than us. But if they go back to some of the rules that were thrown out in 2010, the last time we dealt with this issue, it would have a huge impact on the industry. And it involves the way packers or producers can... um, uh, just a whole host of issues, but the ownership of pigs is probably the biggest one. Um, you know, disallowing ownership of any livestock prior to seven days to slaughter, that's one thing that would be very harmful to the industry and the way it's structured today. How would it affect you? It limits a producer's ability to contract pigs. So if you have pigs contracted, how does that play into the gypsa rule? Uh, those are Those are all concerns that we have as producers. The other thing that was... Um, was very concerning was if you contract production with another producer, which is very common in our industry, there were a whole list of criteria that they wanted met that are not really issues for the pork industry. Um, Long-term contracts, contracts that would guarantee the payback on buildings or equipment or investment, those kinds of situations, um, you know, a producer may or may not want. They have not been an issue for the pork industry, and if an owner of pigs, as you as a, if you as a producer, is going to have to meet those things, um, you just as well do it yourself. You just as well build the building yourself, or you know, if you have to guarantee someone profitability, um, we just don't feel that should be part of the gypsum ruling. Is there a threat to incentives? In other words, that a company or an integrator would be able to pay more for someone who's doing a better job? And that's exactly right. You have to justify to USDA. That's also another rule, is if they pay a different price for product on a given day, they have a certain amount of time where they have to give written justification of why they paid more for a pig or, for that matter, on your contract. If you're contracting with multiple farmers and you're paying one more than the other because he may have newer facilities or have better performance or a better track record... You have to justify that to USDA. And again, to me, it's just a a classic example of government overreach and into private business and private enterprise and the competition that already exists today. When the House has had hearings, when the Senate has had hearings, or maybe I should say better, there have been hearings lately that were looking at the profitability of the ag industry and specifically for livestock, it was an opportunity for members of the NPPC to talk about our preparedness to foreign disease, primarily uh, foot and mouth disease. How big an issue is this? And that, again, that's another issue we've been discussing. The 
vaccine bank located at Plum, Plum Island for foot and mouth disease contains seven of the 23 known strains of foot and mouth disease virus that are circulating globally. That's a vaccine concentrate. We're very ill-prepared to manufacture actual vaccine doses at the rate and capacity that we would need to if there would be an outbreak in the United States. Very ill-prepared. Not only do we only have about a third of the total strains in reserve, but we don't have contracts to, for, with manufacturers to mass produce the 20, 40, 60, or 80 million doses that would be needed within a matter of days to contain an outbreak. We think it's just, it's just a gross overlooking of a very serious problem. Uh, foot and mouth disease would be an absolutely huge economic shock to this country. And so we want to be prepared to contain it in the best possible way. And uh, certainly today that's with vaccine. Uh, we need to update and expand the vaccine bank, and we need to get contract manufacturers ready to move uh, in high capacity if an outbreak would occur. And that, that's our ask of USDA, and uh, we certainly need to keep bringing that before them and realizing how important it is. You, you just come through a very frustrating situation with PED-V in the country that producers were literally helpless uh, as this disease spread and animals were lost. Um, you've been free of FMD for a number of years now. Do you feel an increased threat that it could make its way into the country? We, yes, we certainly do. With the amount of traffic, uh, mainly human traffic, that's occurring today, just that alone is an increased odds of bringing that disease into the country. It could be human traffic. It could be, you know, through some product or, or some other means. Uh, yeah, obviously we just went through the PEDV uh, scenario back in 2013. Uh, but, you know, what if that would have been foot and mouth disease or a more serious disease? And not that PEDV wasn't because it was a very serious deal. But those are the things that are on our mind. We have to be prepared in this, in today's, mobile society and the way people move and products move around the globe, we have to be prepared. And if you want to add to that, you can. Um, um, we don't like to talk about it, but obviously there's, there's other threats out there uh, that could have, again, severe economic impact on us, uh, whether it be terrorism or whatever it may be. We have to be very well prepared uh, to defend an outbreak of foot and mouth disease. Does your defense idea carry a price tag? How much would it take to do the things that you're talking about, or do you know? I know the costs, the estimates have been significantly high. Um, we have proposed to USDA that they would prorate this over a three- to five-year period as they expand this bank. I mean, we're talking, I think the numbers I heard were you know, in that 15 to $30 million range. And it would not all have to be uh, done at once, but it would have to be expanded over, you know, spent over a period of years and, and certainly be on top of their radar list. At the same time, that's a fraction of the cost it would be if you had a major outbreak in the Ab country. Absolutely. I mean, we know for a fact that exports would be shut off immediately, which would have a huge economic impact uh to all of the meat industry, both beef and pork. John, we talk about agriculture and being prepared for a growing world population. Number one, we have more mouths to feed, 
but also the mouths that are here already as the middle class grows, they have a demand for a different type of diet, including more protein. That leads us to the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Why is that particular trade agreement so important to livestock producers and particularly to the swine industry? The way TPP was negotiated uh, was very, very beneficial to the pork industry. Um, giving us market access to um, these countries uh, was just absolutely huge. Um, these are countries that are economically uh, improving, which allows them to improve their diets and to consume more protein. So the, you know, the market potential is absolutely huge. And giving access into these countries uh, is very key. Uh, it would be it would be absolutely huge for the pork industry. Would you say this is a make or break decision for the pork industry? You know, I think it could be that serious because of the competition that exists today. If we don't participate in this global economy, someone else is going to, and certainly the European Union is going to negotiate whether they're bilateral, multilateral trade agreements with these countries. It's unbelievably competitive out there. Meat production is very competitive. And getting access into these markets is critically important for us as an industry. We can compete globally uh, and, and very strongly compete, but we have to have access into these countries with good, sound trade agreements. And then we can compete with South America or the Europeans or the Canadians, for that matter, all of which are trying to get access into these markets. Waters of the U.S. is a regulatory issue that has been on the forefront of a lot of commodity groups, and you mentioned it as well. Uh, it seems that it's destined for the Supreme Court. How does WOTUS, how has it already affected your industry? How do you see that it would affect your industry if it was implemented? The, the biggest thing that it's done so far since it's you know, becoming law, I believe last August of 2015 is when it officially became law and then was put under stay by several different district judges, the overreach of waters of the United States, there is virtually nothing on our Midwestern farmland that wouldn't be encompassed under waters of the United States. So how you go about doing conservation practices, how you go about even everyday farming practices, if you read the rule, could be very problematic. Whether you're you know, spraying herbicides or planting seed, seed that's treated with fungicides or insecticides um, that go through a waterway, may or may not have water in it, are all part of this um, overreach. And from our point of view, what we feel is waters of the United States, the way it was brought about without consulting any of the, Im the industries that it impact, not only agriculture, but multiple other industries are going to be impacted by waters of the United States, uh, without any consultation or any input, uh, was simply not correct. John would also ask, how do you feel about the Supreme Court's ruling that a landowner can challenge the Army Corps of Engineers? Well, yeah, that, that's another recent case. Um, I think the courts are going to have to decipher many of the issues. Again, that's another one of the problems. When you don't involve the people you're regulating, you're going to end up with judges that are going to determine the outcome of some of these rules and proposed regulations. And, and I think that's, again, where the, the biggest shortfall was, is that, that EPA did not involve the industries that it was trying to regulate or going to regulate uh, went well beyond their 
jurisdictional authority, and now we've got this, uh, you know, we've got this conflict coming back with challenges from individuals. You're going to see challenges from states and from whole geographical areas on the implementation of WOTUS. John Weber, we want to thank you for spending time with us on Open Mic. And, sir, it is Open Mic, and you have an open forum. We I really appreciate the opportunity. Again, uh, we're looking forward to World Pork Expo this coming week. Um, we're going to be discussing a lot of these issues in detail. Uh, I think we covered a lot of them here. And uh, certainly TPP is the uh, priority issue for our industry. Uh, we're going to be – it's one of these issues I call an optimistic issue. It allows – a future for our next generation of pork producers uh, into the marketplace. And then obviously we're, the issues we're very concerned about, uh, along with that, GYPSA, antibiotics, uh, the foot and mouth disease vaccine bank, we're going to continue to work uh, with our legislators on these issues as we move forward. And uh, that's what our job is. Our thanks to National Pork Producers Council President John Weber, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by CHS Inc. CHS Inc. is a leading global agribusiness owned by farmers, ranchers, and cooperatives across the United States. Learn more at chsinc.com. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Alley.